Well, we're going to begin a new series this morning on the book of Ephesians. And so, since it's the first sermon on Ephesians, I want to give an introduction to the book and uh, explain a little bit about the context. Um, Sometimes when you read a commentary, it's just really helpful for explaining the summary of the book, what all it, it contains. And other times when you read a commentary, the introduction goes on and on and on and on with arguments about who wrote it, Sorry, it starts with Paul. Do we have to do this? I've been reading and reading and reading. And, and, you know, there's a lot of really silly commentaries out there. That's that's what I'm going to say. There's a lot of really silly commentaries. People have wasted a lot of time arguing about things that aren't worth arguing about. And so, um, I don't want to waste a lot of time on an introduction that deals with arguments or concerns that you might not have. In fact, I hope you don't have. But let's just say that um, there uh, there are a lot of people who don't believe the Bible and yet who study the Bible. They study it very carefully, very deeply. They read it. They can quote it. And so what I want us to do is not study the Bible unfruitfully, like those people who had written these commentaries, but I want us to study the Bible and have it bear fruit in our lives. And it, the, it, the, there, there's various ways of being unfruitful as we study God's Word. One is to simply sit in judgment over it, distance ourselves from it, and be like, well, you know, if Paul wrote it, then it was probably not to the Ephesians, you understand. That was prob- That's one way. Another way is for it to be unfruitful because this is how we read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints here at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you in peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, thank you. Blessed be the God. All right, I read my Bible for today, Mom. There's no, there's no fruit in it, is there? You don't get anything out of it. Now, many of the things that are, in this, that are in this book that God has given to us are difficult. You know how I know that? Because Peter in his letter says that many of the things that Paul wrote are difficult. So the Bible tells us that there are difficult things in the Bible. That's how we know there are difficult things in the Bible. But... <clears throat> I also know that our hearts are easily distracted. I know that we are quickly turned from thinking about what we're reading, from caring about what we're reading, to wondering who's going to win the Super Bowl. Right? It's easy to be distracted. It's easy to care about things that are meaningless. And... Let me be blunt, who wins the Super Bowl is meaningless. And if soccer's more your game, who wins the World Cup, even though it only happens every four years, also meaningless. Okay? Many of the things that we care very deeply about are meaningless. Meanwhile, we're thinking about them while we're reading the Word. And this is an example of, another example of the children's sermon that we had where we have little things and they're blinding us to big things. So here we are, we're coming to a new book. I want you to open your eyes, 
move the little things. Are you with me? Look at the big things because that's what Paul is trying to declare to the Ephesians and to us. God has given us a message. And it's a glorious message. So let us read it and hear it. Understand it. And be moved by the glorious truths that we see here. So, now I'm going to give you the actual introduction to the book. What's Ephesians about? It's written by Paul, the apostle, chosen by Jesus Christ, right? And it's written to the church at Ephesus. Here's how Calvin puts it very briefly. He says, the Ephesians had been instructed by Paul in the pure doctrine of the gospel. They had been instructed in the pure doctrine of the gospel. At a later period, while he was a prisoner at Rome, and perceiving that they needed confirmation, he wrote to them this letter. Why would they need confirmation? Have any of you ever needed to hear something more than once? To remember it? What what did you ask me to get at the grocery store? I can't remember. Need to hear it again. So so we remember is one reason. But so so that we are confident in it, so that we believe it, so that we don't lose track of it. Right? Sometimes your mom has to tell you, make sure you take your lunch. Keep track of it. She tells you numerous times because that's how quickly we are to become distracted by other things, right? I want the front seat. Did you remember your lunch? No, I was distracted by something that felt very important. But who sits in the front seat doesn't matter whether you eat lunch That begins to rise to the level of mattering, right? So why would the Ephesian church need confirmation? Well, this also is revealed to us in the Bible. Listen to this from Acts 20. This is while the Apostle Paul is on a journey and he stops near Ephesus... He's on a journey by boat. He stops near Ephesus and he sends for the elders of the Ephesian church. And so the elders come to the shore to meet with him briefly while he's on his journey. It's kind of like, you know, I'm I'm, going to be on the interstate. I'm going to be on the tollway. Do you think you can make it to the, uh, the overpass, you know, where there's a Starbucks? So I don't have to leave... The interstate, I'm just going to make a quick stop. We can talk, then I can keep going. And here's what he says to the elders of the church at Ephesus. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Paul knows that that's going to happen. He says, I know. He's not guessing. He's not assuming. He knows. And so then, is it any surprise that he writes a letter to the church at Ephesus? So that they could be confirmed in the pure doctrine of the holy faith, so that they would have confidence in the things that Paul had taught them already? Why do they need confirmation, as Calvin puts it? Because there are particular things that God has taught us that were under attack at that time. And that Paul was dealing with in all the churches The Judaizers were a group of men who said that it wasn't good enough for people to become Christians. They also had to become Jews. 
That's the simplest way of putting it. They had to not just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but they also had to save themselves by their obedience to the law. This was a constant problem in the churches, and so Paul is trying to give the Ephesian church a vaccine. We think vaccines are bad, I know. Everyone's got bad feelings towards vaccines, but they're good. Vaccines are good, and Paul's trying to give the church a vaccine here against a bad, bad problem, bad doctrine that's very tempting for the church at that time and still today. It's not the only thing that that's not the only doctrine that he's trying to have a, a vaccine against, though. <clears throat> Many people still today reject some of the simple things that are taught. People who claim to be Christians. People that I respect still reject some of these simple truths. In particular, what we call the doctrines of grace. Now, have you kids ever heard of the doctrines of grace? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the doctrines of grace. Okay, you got a couple hands. All right. So you're going to learn something new today. That's good. The doctrines of grace are uh, a, a center of what was taught at the Reformation. Okay, so the doctrines of grace teach us that God is sovereign, that God is in control. We all know God's in control, right? God's powerful and he, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. But not just, the doctrines of grace don't just say that God is sovereign, but they say God's really sovereign. He's sovereign even over our salvation. He's sovereign even over our salvation. He's in control of whether we will be saved and of who will be saved. So that's, that's really... Now, there, there's, five, there's five points to the, to the doctrines of grace, and they're TULIP, okay? So T-U-L-I-P. You can go and look up what each of those doctrines of grace are. You can search for doctrines of grace, TULIP. And you can read what they are. But, but we're not going to go into that right now. I just want you to know that's, that's at the center of what Paul is trying to make sure we remember in this letter. He is, that God is sovereign over everything. And especially over our salvation. So we already know the letter is written by Paul. It's written to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. <clears throat> so who are those people? Well, they're men and women that he had deep love for. Deep love for them. I told you the story of the time he spent on the shore with the Ephesian elders. <clears throat> but he had started that church. He had planted that church. And so, it was precious to him. If you read Paul in other letters talking about his desires, one of his desires that he brings up several times in the New Testament is that his work wouldn't be in vain. But that the churches would stay devoted to Jesus Christ. And so that's why, again, this is this letter of confirmation of what he has taught, reminder of what they have already heard. Because he started the church and he gave them their, their doctrine, their solid foundation. It's the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and the twelve apostles as the foundation, Right? And so, he wants them to remember because he loves them. He'd started that church. He cried with the elders on the beach when he visited them and left that last time. There was deep affection and love between Paul and the church at Ephesus. But it's not just 
the church at Ephesus, it's to us too, right? And, in fact, to all the saints. So when Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in that first verse of Ephesians, he then says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He calls them saints and faithful. And, and Paul's writing to all the saints and all of the faithful who are in Christ Jesus. Even though, remember, he knew that some of the people in that church were not saints. His desire is to protect them from falling prey to the false doctrine that the others would begin to teach. And so he's writing to those who remain faithful in Christ Jesus. Who else is he writing to? The Gentiles. Saints in Ephesus, for the most part, are Gentiles, not Jews. So the church at Ephesus was largely made up of non-Jews, and that is why they might be particularly susceptible to Judaizers coming in and causing all kinds of problems for them because they're, they're wondering, well, wait, did I not learn enough? Did I not hear it all? Did Paul not tell us everything we needed to do, everything we need to know? This whole book, of course, applies to us, to all Christians, not just the ones at Ephesus. And what does Paul start the book by doing? He starts by reminding us that he is a true apostle, directly chosen by Jesus for this work. And it's not because Paul was insecure that he had to remind us at the beginning of all of his letters who he was. It's because he wanted us to know whose authority he was under. And that's what matters. Remember, if your siblings come out and say, you have to come inside, The question you ask is, says who? And Paul answers that question here. He doesn't say, says me. He says, Jesus Christ says. Jesus Christ says, I am to be an apostle and to teach. And that's why I write. That's who's writing. The Apostle of Jesus Christ is writing. Directly chosen by Jesus. And there are some who would try to say that Paul didn't really know what he was talking about. And that was at that time the super apostles who felt like, and they were often the Judaizers, felt like, you know, they could take things to the next level. Beyond what the apostles had done. But that's not just back then, it's, it's today still that there are some who would try to say that Paul didn't really know what he was talking about. There's a lot of people who will contrast what Jesus said and what Jesus was like to that guy Paul who was a bit of a crazy man. To that guy Paul who, who was trying to form the doctrines of the church into his own sort of well, we call it Pauline Christianity. And whenever you hear Pauline Christianity, you know that there's something wrong. Because it's not Pauline, it's Jesusine. Because Jesus is the one who gave Paul this message. You understand? That's what Paul is driving at. And he's trying to remind us who is actually talking to us. Those who say that 
Paul's message really wasn't very good, really wasn't, didn't line up with what Jesus taught, really didn't go far enough with what people needed to know. His message wasn't complete. All of these things are swept away by that first little phrase, an apostle of Christ Jesus. By the will of God, the second phrase, just drives it home, right? And so the people who are saying to the Gentiles in Ephesus and elsewhere, you need to become faithful Jews. Paul is intentional in reminding us and them that he has the full authority of Jesus Christ and the complete message of the gospel. He has it all. There's nothing missing. He's not acting on his own authority. He's not making stuff up to teach. He's not assuming and guessing and filling in some blanks. It's by the will of God that he has been chosen by Jesus Christ to be an apostle to give this message to us. And so there is no question whatsoever about what he's about to say. It's from God. It's the complete message of the gospel. And then what does he say? By way of greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see the tenderness and the love that he has for the people of God through the ages. Grace to you. Grace and peace. This is a phrase where you end up with Latin on a banner somewhere, you know. Gratia et caris, I think. Is that peace? No. Pox, right. Yeah, I said that this, this morning in my head. That's why I was confused. So what is caris? It's Greek. Thank you. Grace and peace. See, we want to turn it into Latin and Greek so that, what? So that we look smart. I don't look smart after that. No, we, we want to turn it, that's, that's one of the reasons. But another one of the reasons is because that's how little it connects with us, grace and peace. From, from Paul, I mean, he doesn't know us, whatever. And plus, what does grace and peace mean anyway? You know, it's just Christianese words that you hear. Grace to you and peace. Well, I thank you, yes. And back at you, or whatever. But grace and peace, this is what Paul is seeking out of his deep affection to communicate to us that he has that he has he has wonderful wonderful things to give us god's grace and the peace that comes from it okay now that's important at the start of this book because the very next verse that we come to uh or, the, or, or verse 4, rather, two verses from now, begins to introduce things that might shake us up, that might make us not feel very peaceful. But Paul is attempting to remind us that the things that he is speaking give us God's grace and produce peace in us. He's, he's offering a blessing. It's just a greeting in one sense. But it's not disconnected from the message of the letter. Okay? This, this way of greeting, he writes the letters and it introduces himself and reminds us who he is so that we can have confidence in what he writes. And then he gives us this, this greeting. Why? This blessing. Why? Not, not so that we can have confidence, right? But so that we can remember 
what it is that he's communicating, what it is that he's offering, what it is that he's giving to us. God's grace, God's peace from the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how he begins, introduces himself, gives us this wonderful warm greeting. And yet, verse 3, he turns and he gives this, this changing direction to us. No longer is he really talking to or about us. He, the moment he starts the actual content of his letter, what does he say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He turns and he just begins praising God. That's how he starts the letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. There is nothing else that we need. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, it's spiritual, not physical. Paul doesn't say he has blessed us with every physical blessing, does he? In fact, I've been saving this. Sneak it in right here. Paul is writing this letter while he's in prison. Context is important, right? He's writing this letter while he's in prison. And and look at the concern that he has for the Ephesians. And the lack of concern that he seems to show in the fact that he's in prison. He says, God's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And you know how easy it is for you to experience a little problem or a big problem in life, some trial or tribulation, just as Paul is going through here, and to be like, God's God's not blessed me. God isn't blessing me. There are, though, many physical blessings that we may not have. Paul himself is in prison. But that is itself a spiritual blessing to him. If you read the way Paul talks about being in prison at other times and the various things that he suffered, he is able to make use of them for his work. To accomplish greater things for Christ Jesus. Not a physical blessing to be in prison, but it can indeed be a spiritual blessing. And these blessings, he continues, and he says, These blessings, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And this is a theme that we'll see several times in this book. Paul wants us to look at the way things are in heaven, not just on earth. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this is part of the reason why this book can be difficult, because what he's trying to get us to do is to open our eyes to things that are hard to see. Spiritual blessings rather than physical blessings. In the heavenly places rather than on earth. And they can feel very remote, very distant, far away. Hard to understand, hard to realize what it means for us. But no less real for that. Hard to see maybe? Yes. 
Hard to understand? Yes. Hard to grasp? Yes. But real. In fact, one of the things that's sweet about the fact that our blessings are in the heavenly places is what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, build up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Because nothing can happen to them there. Moth and mold and rust and thieves. No, no, you don't have to worry about that for stuff that's in heaven. The things that are in the heavenly places are sure, protected, safe. Your blessings that you've received in the heavenly places, you don't have to worry about them being lost. That's great news. And so that's part of what you know, when Paul keeps referring to the heavenlies or the heavenly places or in heaven throughout this book, we'll have to, we'll have to keep coming back to that and remembering that he's, he's trying to build a picture that's beyond just the little things that are here in front of our eyes. But to the bigger truths that are so much more fundamental. And the relationship between the heavens and the earth. We'll see as we, as we proceed through the book. But our blessings are sure because they're in heaven and because we've received them in Christ. A couple years ago, I was preaching through Peter and one of the things that he talks about is that inheritance that's sure. It's just absolutely guaranteed because it's in Christ. We see that same theme here. And so, Paul, the true apostle, has the true message of Jesus Christ. And it's, and it's sure. The blessings that he is proclaiming to us are unvarnished, untarnished, can't be taken away, they're locked in the heavenly places. We've received them in Christ Jesus. And so if Christ gives us something, who's going to take it away? Nobody. If it's sealed for us in heaven, what can harm it? N nothing. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture for us. It's like we read earlier in the service. If God is for us, who can be against us? So what is Paul's goal in describing these blessings that we've received? Well, he's using it to praise God. Look what God's given us. That's great. Praise him, right? Blessed be God, because look what he's done for us. Now, sometimes we can say, blessed be God, because look what he is, right? But what he is translates directly into what he does. God is love, therefore, he has loved us. It just flows directly out of who he is. So, so we, can, we can think about what, how should we praise God? What should we bless God for? And we can say, well, because he's all-powerful. Yes, you can. And then you can say, and because he's all-powerful, and he chose to rescue me when I was in that car accident. And so I praise God because of look what he's done for me. So it's both about what he is and about what he has done for us, right? Because what he's done flows out of who he is. They're tied like this. You, you, can't, ever, you can't ever separate them. So don't ever, feel, don't ever feel unholy for praising God for what he's done for you. Because why did he do it? Because of who he is. And so we praise God for, for both, right? Because of who he is and because of what he's done, and they're, they're practically the same thing. 
So Paul's goal in describing these blessings is to praise God and, and we ought to praise God for these blessings. And just like the blessings we have that are sure in heaven, in verse 4, he starts with just as. Okay, so he's, he's making a comparison and saying it's the same way. And what does he say? Just as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So verse 4 starts with just as or just like. <clears throat> and what's, what's he comparing to before that? Just like the blessings we have that are sure in heaven. Okay. So they are sure because of their foundation from God before he had even made the world. So the comparison that you're seeing here in part is the sureness because they've been granted to us in heaven which we will arrive at someday, right? But also that they've been from eternity guaranteed. That the blessings aren't just something that's new Something fresh that God just decided to do, but something that has always been written into his plan. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So, so the direct comparison is that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? Right? And, in the same way, what has he done? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Those are the two things that are similar. So that we would be holy and blameless before him. He chose us before time began. How is that possible? Doesn't, in order for you to choose, doesn't there have to be some thing to choose? The world didn't even exist. And he chose a people for himself. That's weird, right? But we can sort of begin to understand it because... I know you all know how to choose the cookie you want, right? But now there's no cookies here. Look around, no cookies. Can you describe the cookie that you want? Let's say I'm going to make cookies this afternoon. No, let's say Mrs. Patrick is going to make cookies this afternoon. Which, no, that doesn't work. They're all the same. Her cookies are all the same. They're all perfect. If I make cookies, you got little ones with no chocolate chips and big ones full of chocolate, a lot of variety. Okay, so you know which one you want? Y'all can describe the one you're going to pick, right? You can even pick it now. Say, I'm going to make 12. All right, I want the biggest one. Now, this is how we tend to think about God choosing before the foundation of the world, right? Because that's the way that we choose ahead of time before things exist. But this is not the way of God. And this is important. This is a place where, where really it's so fundamentally different from the way that we are. God is so other from us. So much more powerful. So much beyond our comprehension. That all of the analogies that we try to come up with don't really work. 
He chose us before time began. He predestined us. Not just destined us, but predestined us, right? That's the before. Before we existed. For what? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And then verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. So how does God save us? He chooses, and then He acts. Right? And His choice, because it was before the foundation of the world, long before any of us existed, alright, means that He was not choosing on the basis of what you have done. He was not choosing on the basis of, well, last week, you know, well, let's see, I can look and compare and I'll pick the cream. I'll I'll just scoop the cream off the top. Every few years, I'll decide who's going to be saved by by seeing who has risen. And And then I'll choose the people who have risen the highest who have done the best, who have tried their hardest, who have grown to the greatest level of understanding, who have sought the Lord hardest. Right? No, God doesn't doesn't reevaluate every few years and decide, okay, here's the cream off, off the top. God chose before the foundation of the world. And the reason that the the cookie analogy doesn't work is because it's not on the basis of anything that we have done or will do. And because of that, we know that he wasn't just looking forward and saying, well, I know how you will respond and so therefore I will choose you. I know that you will eventually end up with a lot of chocolate chips. And so I will choose you ahead of time. I have had a lot of chocolate chips, but I was talking about us being cookies, which is, I hope you're following. That's not the way God has worked. When he he says he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, There's a purpose. It's so that we would be holy and blameless, right? But what was what was the thing that he was basing it on? What did it flow out of? He doesn't say according to who would respond the best, according to those who would receive, according to those who would be best and most obedient. He just says, according to, verse 5, the kind intention of His will. That's it. That's how He made the choice. According to the kind intention of His will. He just decided. I'm going to save, and here's who I'm going to save. And it's kind kind intention of his will. And so that's how God saves us. But but he uses earthly means. So let's remember that. These earthly means include things like the Apostle Paul going out and proclaiming in Ephesus and people hearing. Or like The Apostle Paul writing this letter to the Ephesians and us to prevent us from falling away into false beliefs or wicked behavior. Because remember, why has God chosen us? Because he wanted to. And so that something would happen. What? That we would be holy. So that we would be holy. And most of Paul's letters have this form that you can follow where it goes 
Here's the message. Here's the doctrine. Here's the teaching. And then, what comes after that? Therefore, here is what you should do. Here's what it looks like to be holy because of that. So, this is true. Therefore, do this. Or don't do that, right? That's Paul's letters. The long ones and the short ones. Now, there is a tendency among some, some of us here, to fear and to worry, to anxiety, because God has chosen whom he will. Remember I said that earlier, and there was this, that this verse 4 was coming, and that, you know, the fact that he is communicating to us, verse 2, grace and peace has to be central to our understanding of these verses, okay? So if predestination is a scary thought to you, we're not understanding it correctly because it's grace and peace to you. Okay? It's grace and peace to you that God has chosen before the foundation of the world. How is, how is it that having heard gracious, peaceful truths that we end up in anxiety. Well, we have misunderstood. That's it. We have misunderstood. Well, there may be many ways for us to misunderstand. But the benefit for our assurance is huge if you realize that God chose before the foundations of the world. Okay? The benefit for our assurance is huge. God has not chosen on the basis of what we will do, or of his knowing how we would respond, or of what we are like, or what we will be like, or anything about us. He simply chose us because of his kind intention. And so you can rest in that fact that God is love and his kind intention is what led him to choose. And so if God is that way and has done that thing, you have nothing to worry about. Now I know the argument that pops into your mind if you are the type to worry about this. The argument is, yes, but there are some whom he has not chosen, right? And how do I know if he has chosen me? How do I know if he has chosen me? How can I rest in assurance? How can I have peace if there's no way for me to know whether he has chosen me or not? That's one argument. And the other argument that we are, uh, I think, more affected by, but, but less likely to talk about, okay, is along the same lines. It starts the same way. It says, but there are some that God has not chosen, right? And therefore, God is not love. And I cannot put my trust in the kind intention of his will because he doesn't have one. And the only reason that we're not inclined to say it, of course, is because that's unholy and we know that that's blasphemous and we shouldn't say it because after all, this is what the Bible says and that's, we're not going to just flat out contradict the Bible, right? We're not going to publicly attribute to God evil, right? But in our hearts, we think, well, yeah, he's chosen some, but he's not chosen others. And what kind of a, what kind, well, I mean, I, I won't use the words, but I mean, after all, 
This is why people talk about predestination, which is right here, you know. He predestined us, right? But what are the words before that? In love, he predestined us. And you got people, like I said, people whom, some of whom I, I greatly respect, who speak of this doctrine that is, I mean, you, you can't miss it, right? I mean, you, you, you could, you, but you'd have to be reading like I was reading before. Blah, 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 blah. I didn't notice that word predestined, right? And, and when you do notice it, you say, no, I hate it. It's demonic. It's wicked. It's satanic. This idea that God would choose, oh, it's awful. It makes God into... It makes God into a monster. He chose some and he didn't choose others and then he condemns them and blah. It has to, the only way to solve this problem is to just reject predestination and say, no, God, God did not choose. Or in, in the way that the Bible talks about it, it just means that he looked ahead and he, and he realized what would happen and then he acted accordingly. Okay. Because otherwise, I can't handle it. I can't handle a God that didn't choose some. That's a terrible thought. That's not loving. That's the opposite of love. And this is what many people have said about this doctrine. G.K. Chesterton says this. You'll hear me quote him in sermons at times. But his, his attitude towards this teaching here in Ephesians, at the very start of Ephesians, is I will throw it out and I will burn it on the ash heap of history. It's awful. I hate this doctrine. Some people are honest about that. That's eh, kind of nice when they're honest about it, right? So there's two arguments. One is, but he didn't choose some, and therefore God is wicked, if this is, if this is truly the way it works. Right? And the other is, but he didn't choose some, and how can I know who I am? Which I am, whether I've been chosen or not. And so either way, you end up with no assurance. Right? Now, Remember, Paul is giving us grace and peace in this. So we must be misinterpreting something. And of course, the blasphemous one that makes God the author of evil is clearly wrong, right? And that's why we don't generally want to say that. Even though we might feel it in our, in our gut, Ugh, it feels terrible for God to not choose some. Right? And so I feel like God is the author of evil. I won't say it. We're, we're really judging God and saying that's not love. That's not kind intention of his will. That's the awful, evil, nasty, mean intention of his will. Right? Well, let's ask the question, how can you know? Paul writes to the whole Ephesian church and he knows that some will rise up from among their own number who will lead others astray, right? But he writes to the saints who are at Ephesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. How did God choose? He chose out of the kind intention of his heart, out of his will. And so you can rest in that fact. That if you go to Christ, what has he said? He will not cast you away.
That's it. And you say, but that's ridiculous. How can you make that jive with him choosing ahead of time before the foundation of the world? And I say, we're talking about two different things here. We're talking about assurance versus election. You asked how you could be sure, and my answer to you is, go to him. He will not cast you away. You say, but how can I know whether I can go to him? Well, he has said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. Okay, you want to talk about assurance? We can talk about assurance. You want to talk about predestination? We can talk about predestination. Well, I don't see how they work together. Yeah, well, welcome to the club. And really, neither does anybody else. Nobody can truly, truly explain that. But we know that there is an absolute guarantee from Jesus Christ himself that he will not cast away those who come to him. So go to him. And he will not cast you away. You want assurance? Go to him. It is a sure thing. It's a sure thing. And what is he going to do with those who come to him besides not cast them away? He's going to hold them and, and never let them fall out of his hand either or be taken out of his hand or be pushed out of his hand. Right? Why? Because he is adopting us. And adoption is a beautiful, beautiful doctrine. Being made part of his family. Being made his sons. For real. Not just for pretend. And this is what has happened in heaven. We have gotten new family. Jesus Christ, our older brother. You couldn't ask for a better older brother. It's happened in heaven. We've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Our name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. It's happened in heaven. It's a done deal. Adopted. It's glorious. And he chose us so that we would be holy and blameless before him. And he's going to instruct us later in the book on what holy and blameless behavior looks like. But in the meantime, we know that our response is to be obedience. Obedience and praising him. And this is why they are called the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. It was just the kind intention of his will and it was Freely bestowed. So, the kind intention of his will, this is what he's done. He's predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. What? What, what then? To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. What was this grace that he bestowed on us in the beloved? Well, it's all of what we've been talking about, right? But in the, how, how did it happen? It happened in Christ Jesus coming and dying and being raised again, right? This is how it was accomplished. So that's why it's in the beloved. Beloved of the Father. The Son is beloved of the Father, right? And beloved to us. And this is why the Apostle Paul ends with that little, you know, he is freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The beloved is Jesus. We love him. God the Father loves him. And this is how he has bestowed his grace on us. His saving grace. What a gracious gift that was. To send his son to die. 
And so we are to praise the glory of his grace. Now that's not a normal thing, I don't think, for us to think about. We think about praising God, right? And we think about glorifying God, and we think about God's glory, right? But do you ever think about praising the glory of his grace? We're like three levels removed from God at that point, right? Not just his glory, but the glory of his grace. This is why Amazing Grace, the song, is a great example of us singing not just about God, but about the glory of his grace. Think about that. We actually sing about the glory of his grace because the Bible tells us to. Not just because some people are emotionally very overwrought. We sing about the glory of his grace because that's how glorious his grace is. How glorious that he would just choose us and then adopt us. Couldn't ask for anything better. The best kind of grace. Saving grace. 